in the third week of a series called How to Survive the End of the World. And you're probably wondering, why is Graylin up here, not Pastor Mitch? This weekend, Pastor Mitch and Brandy and Hazel and Henry are enjoying some much-needed rest and relaxation. And if you know how hard they work, which many of you do, because they, they probably spend weekends or weeknights taking you to dinner, you know, answering phone calls and texts and writing messages and traveling and all that. So it's always a blessing when, you know, the headship of this house have an opportunity to get away, to be fed and to be ministered to and just to rest. So if you would this week, remember to pray for them, send them a text, tell them how much you love them and you miss them. And we are excited to have them back next week. If you love your pastor, his wife and family, why don't you put your hands together? We're thankful for their vision and leadership in this house. If this is your first uh, first day to come or Sunday to be a part of this series, let me just recap you know, where we've been the past couple weeks. How to survive the end of the world. We're talking about eternity, about the end times, and whether or not God comes in, in this generation and in my lifetime, I'm living in my end time, meaning I only can do what I can do in the time that he's allowed me. But he does tell us this in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, that the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it. And then the end will come. So that's an encouraging verse right there. The good news is going to be preached to the entire world. And then the end will come. So Pastor, I love how he, he kind of he opened it up to us. Like we have some control of when God comes back by our witness and our testimony. How we spread this gospel. How we move this gospel through missions, what we do. So before he comes, the entire world will have an opportunity to hear it. And then God's plan for the world is us. Everybody point to yourself and say, that's me. Everybody point to yourself and say, that's me. And then he told them, go into all the world and preach the good news to everyone. We have literally been tasked with the greatest objective of all time, and that is to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Every nation kindred, tongue, tribe, wherever you are. Each of us have an opportunity to speak hope and life and the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone in this world. And one point that really resonated with me last week was that love will lead you somewhere. And I've never looked at this verse like this, but Pastor Mitch preached John three sixteen. for this is how God loved the world he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It wasn't enough for him to love us, but he's pointing us in the direction of eternity. That's powerful. What a gift, what a privilege to get to know him. If you're excited about the word of God, why don't you just where you are, lift your hands and pray with me right now. God, we ask in Jesus' name that you'd have your way in this house. We pray that you speak, Lord God, through me. Lord, I want to I be your vessel today. I pray that someone's life would be touched, changed. They would be encouraged, Lord God. And Lord, we want to not only survive the end of this world, Lord God, we want to thrive in it. And so we come before you today in Jesus' name, hearts and minds ready to hear from you. And everybody said amen. Everybody said amen. One more time, put your hands together. So when I began to think about eternity, I'm taken back to my childhood and my youth. 
And I grew up in a churchy church, and we sang a lot of music, and we heard a lot of preaching. But some songs that come to my mind are like, soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. I see heads nod and sing it. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Soon and very soon, we are going to see the king. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, we're going. And if you're real church, he modulates right here and says, no more crying there. We are going to see the king. No more crying there. We are going to see the king. Okay. No more crying there. We are going to see the king. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We're going to see the king. Here we go. And some glad morning when this life is over, fly away to, to up. Well, dark will never, I forgot the words. I'll fly away. Come on, all together, sing, I'll fly away, all glo oh glory. Sing, I'll fly away, oh glory. I'll fly away. Because when I die, when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Give yourselves a hand. Y'all sound amazing. I was starting to laugh because I was the tenor in the back that would do the parts. I'll fly away. Y'all, you know about that. If you grew up like I grew up, that was like, and we were excited to sing it too. We were leaning in. But my upbringing gave me an awareness of the coming of the Lord. I heard about it at home. Mom made sure we knew you better be living right. Jesus is coming. There's a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And we heard great music, but we also heard incredible sermons. Evangelists and preachers would come and they'd preach, they'd preach hell so hot, I'd be sweating, just, just nervous, like, oh, my God. Don't come right now, Jesus. Just let me get to the altar. Just let me get down before you, Lord. I, I'll lay it all down. And we'd be at camps breaking CDs, throwing stuff in the bonfire, like, never again, Lord. You know, we... Did anybody go to youth camp like that? That was us, man. They'd be a big old fire. We'd throw all of it. And it's like, why did you bring that to camp in the first place? Leave your guns and, and other bad stuff at home. You're like, don't, don't bring it here. But if I'm being completely transparent with you, I would have to admit that oftentimes my response to those sermons and those messages was fear. I would be scared, and that would be my motivation. So fear would propel me to take a step, to lay something down, to give something up. But everybody knows that once you're no longer afraid, what do you do? You pick it right back up. And that was my reality. So it wasn't until I got a little bit older that I realized that there had to be a shift in my pursuit. There had to be a shift in my approach to God and living for God. And that's where we're going to spend a little bit time today. So one more time, just, just buckle in. I want you to stay with me. Thank you, Henry. You're amazing, sir. 
Y'all give it up for Henry. He, he is the best keyboardist you'll probably never hear about because he's on everybody's stuff. He really is. So he, he is he's phenomenal. But we, we are very blessed to have them here. The Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And there's the difference between fearing God reverently, fearing God with, you know, a respect for him and just being scared. And that being the motivation for the reason you live for him or the reason you don't do something. If you live in that state or posture uh, of service to the Lord, you are really not living for him. Because your walk and relationship with him will be inconsistent. It will be immature and you're just merely existing to stay out of hell. But if you're truly pursuing God and everything that he has for you, then you will be moving towards eternity with purpose. Today I want to encourage us for just a few moments to again change our focus. A paradigm shift if I can say. And the first thing we have to do is we have to come to an agreement that heaven and hell are both real places. They're more than just fictional places in, in literature. Like Hogwarts or Narnia. And I'll be completely honest with you. I kind of hope Hogwarts is real just because I'm still waiting for my owl and I'm a nerd. But that's a joke. Kind of. But heaven and hell are real. They transcend fiction. They've transcended time. They are real places. And we have to understand why both of these real places are written into the scripture. Why God created them and what is their purpose. If you would allow me for just a moment, I'd like to give you some, some insight or some background knowledge of why hell was created. The Bible talks about an angel named Lucifer. Some passages of scripture call him the dragon, Satan, the devil. I like Isaiah 14, 12. It gives you just a little bit of insight into who he really was in the kingdom in heaven before he was thrown out. The verse starts like this. They address him this way. Oh, shining star, son of the morning. That right there lets me know that he was probably a pretty big deal. But he does something that causes this next statement. You have been thrown down to earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens. And here's where it hits us. Because he wanted to be like the most high. And we all know that there's only one throne. And only one will sit on it. So when he tries to exalt himself by letting pride grip him, he begins his destruction. Proverbs 16, 18 says it like this, pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. Revelation chapter 12 tells us a little bit more about this, this, this battle that actually wages in, in heaven between Michael, the archangel, and then Lucifer and his angels. But a couple verses I want to make sure we grasp is Revelation 9, excuse me, 12, 9. 
They call him the great dragon, the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, the one deceiving the world was thrown down to earth with all his angels. So again, it shows us that he's been cast out. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who live in the heavens, rejoice, but terror will come on the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you in great anger, knowing that he has little time. So how do you go from the shining star, O son of the morning, to being kicked out, thrown out of heaven? Imagine what he's felt really since the beginning of time, knowing that he has lost all access to a place and a position that he once filled. That he will never again have an opportunity to sit at the feet of the Most High. He'll never be reinstated or placed back where he was. So since he's been cast out, the Bible says that he's been deceiving the world. Because he knows that he has little time. One more time, Matthew 25, 41 tells us that the king will turn those on the left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. So hell was created for Lucifer, this deceptive one, this dragon, this snake, the word of God calls him because he tries to, to lift himself up above God. But hell has done something else since the beginning of time. The Bible says that hell hath enlarged itself, meaning it's gotten bigger. And why Isaiah 15, excuse me, 514 tells us that it's enlarged itself. It's opened her mouth without measure and their glory and their multitude and their pomp. Again, that pride and he that rejoiceth shall descend to it. Satan knows he has little time, so the Bible lets us know that he, like the thief, has purposed in himself to steal, to kill, and destroy. I love 1 Peter 5, 8. It tells us this, to stay alert. Watch out for the great enemy, the devil, because he prowls like a lion, roaring, looking for someone to devour. He knows that his time is short, so he's doing everything in his power to take as many people down with him as he can. A place that's meant for him and him alone. So his sole, S-O-U-L, purpose is to distract, to steal, kill, and destroy. But I want to encourage you this morning by saying this, that hell was not created for you. Hell was not created for you. If you believe that, say amen. Hell without doubt or question was created for one, the scripture shows us. My wife and her friend were walking on Friday, doing a little walk jog, and they said they went past a bench, and on the bench somebody had written, Jesus loves everyone. But then they looked a little closer and somebody had spray painted over it and put hates everyone. And there's a prevailing ideology, a prevailing thought process of some that would question how can a God who loves his creation create such a place like hell? A misconception that many people stand on when they're trying to debate Christ. Why would a God of love create such a place? 
let's look a little closer. If it's the sincere desire that everyone knows God, if it's his desire, why would he create it in the first place? Why would he place judgment on humanity? Humans who are created in his image were not meant to spend eternity away from God. The place God created for you and for I is heaven. John 14, 2 and 3 says this. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That where I am, there you may be also. That's encouraging, amen? The king of glory said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. So he created this one environment, this place for Satan and his angels, but he goes to create a place for me. And there's many mansions in my father's house. In his house, there are many mansions. So what kind of house does my father have? That's a big house where we can play football. Like that? Thank you. Thank you. Again, I've been in, yeah, a long time. They're still playing that song on Caleb right now, so... Hell was not created for humanity, but it is the destination for those who reject the salvation of Jesus Christ. So again, people will ask, how can God reconcile a people separated by sin and death to him to keep them out of hell? I'll tell you how. The God we serve is a God of love, a God of holiness, but he is a God of justice. And these three moral attributes work in complement of each other. They cannot contradict each other. That means that the same God who created all things is bound to his word. When the laws of God are disobeyed, there must be a judgment. It demands a price. But God can still love us, but sin does not go unpunished. Romans 6.23 says it like this, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Now, when you hear wages, think of cost, result, a consequence, ransom. This is the reason Jesus came to earth to die for the sins of the world. I love Matthew 20.28 when it says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others. And to give his life as a ransom for many. I heard a preacher one time preach it like this. He could have called 10,000 angels if he wanted to. To take him off the cross. The word tells us that the earth shook. Because the God of heaven stretched himself wide. To save humanity. At any moment he could have stopped it. But he died for you and for I. Romans 5, 6, and 8 says it like this. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who's especially good. But God showed great love, great love by sending Christ to die for us when we were still sinners. 
God sends his son. He robes himself in flesh to take our punishment so that we can have an opportunity to know him, to serve him, and to live with him forever. It's only when you refuse salvation and forgiveness that you will find that final judgment that is clearly taught in this scripture of hell. The Bible says that God does not want anyone to go to hell. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9 says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's why the word of God will be preached to every corner of this planet before he comes back. To give every person, every human being, every life an opportunity to know him in the power of his salvation. In the power of his forgiveness. But hell was not created for you. Heaven was. And this is where the paradigm has to shift in our focus. The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. And it made me think of babies learning to walk. My daughter started walking on July 4th of this year. It was real patriotic, man. I was just finding all. And her aunts were kind of, they were there. Nikki's on this side. Alex is on this side. And, you know, me and her mom had tried so hard. And it's funny to watch a baby learn how to walk. And if any of you with children or close to kids, you know, it's cute because they just fall. They're resilient. They'll get back up and they fall, and it's cute every time. But on July 4th, I don't know what happened. They, they got her up. One of her, her aunts is on one side, the other's on the other. And Ember, go ahead, Ember, go ahead. And one step, two steps, fall. One step, two step, three step. And then she finally makes it to her auntie's arms. Carrying the American flag. And I'm not even joking. I'm going to show you a video after service because she really is. But it made me think of our Heavenly Father. Just looking down, asking for us to keep our eyes on him. Arms stretched wide. Just, just, just keep your eyes on me, Graham. And one thing you learn about a baby learning to walk is they get better at it. As long as they stay focused, as long as we stay focused, our, 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 our strength begins to increase and we can move a little bit faster. Our gait improves and before you know it, we're running. And the same is true for your walk in relationship with God. If you can keep your eyes on the king of glory, your pace will, will get a little stronger. You, you'll get a little bit faster and before you know it, you're running the race that God says is not given to the swift but to the ones who endure to the end if we can keep our eyes and focus on him. Amen. So our God in his infinite love and mercy made a way in becoming the sacrifice to give us an opportunity to be free from death, to be free from the grave, to be free from hell. That's why we can sing, oh, grave, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? Because he literally took the keys. He took the power away from death, hell, and the grave. Our God is such a God of love, a God of truth, that even though his law mandates that a price must be paid for sin, the God of heaven robes himself in flesh 
He walks this earth for 33 years experiencing everything that we've experienced. And I love the verse that says, for we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. But it was tempted. He feels what I feel. He knows what it's like. And because of that, he can be the ultimate sacrifice. He gives himself as the ransom to ensure that we can spend eternity with him. If you're thankful for that, why don't you put your hands together? And the word has showed us earlier that Satan knows this. So since he's been cast out of heaven, the word tells us that he's doing everything in his power to deceive the men, the women, the sons and daughters of the king of glory to distract them from everything that God has for them, seeking whom he may devour. Pastor Mitch preached it like this. He says that the enemy is trying its best to distract the people of God. If he can get you just to take your eyes off of him for just a moment, the slow fade, gradually, he'll wait. He's been waiting eternity. If I can just get you to just take your eyes off of he knows that hell hath enlarged itself, so there's room for more. And I began to think about it. It's not just those who don't know God. It's the seasoned veterans, saints, as you may have heard it said, who've been living for God forever, where it just becomes mundane. It becomes go through the motions. It becomes habit. The life has been taken out of your walk. The fire, the zeal has been taken. So he'll wait until you're tired. Like a lion. He'll pounce. Lions are the kings of the jungle. We know that. But if you watch Animal Planet, you know they are usually going to take advantage of easy prey. One lion won't take down an elephant. But they'll wait. They'll hang out. They'll hide. The enemy is the same way. He wants to keep those who have never experienced God in the power of his resurrection, in the power of his salvation, distracted. Because if, if, for some, if somebody comes to tell them that God heals, that God forgives and God changes, then maybe they'll turn away from the things of this world and follow them. He wants to keep them distracted and focused on the things of this world. That's why our society is in the shape it's in, because we focused on things other than God. Satan is doing his absolute best to take as many people with him. But I'll say it again, that hell was not created for you. It was not created for me. It was not created for this world, even though it's in the shape that it's in. Hell was not created for those created in God's image. Christ died for us so that we can make heaven our home. There's a song, um, I think Tasha Cobb singing. She sings, there's an army rising up. There's an army rising up. There's an army rising up to break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. To break every chain, break every chain, break every chain. And then there's a part I like. It says, I hear the chains falling. And I hear the chains falling. 
And that lets me know that there's still hope. That God is empowering, he's equipping, he's, he's deploying the children of God to step out and find their purpose and their mission. And I lived many of my days of, as a young person and even into my adulthood fearing hell. And that was my motivation rather than pursuing heaven the God of creation who created a place for me. This type of approach to a living for God, walking with God, or to eternity is counterproductive because what it does, when you're trying to stay out of hell, you're not on mission. Because you're focused on just just doing enough. I I don't want to be bad enough. I'll do this, but I'm not going to do that because I don't take me to hell. Or God, is it a sin? You know, whenever we ask that question, we probably shouldn't do it. But the reality of it is, and I want to echo the words of Pastor Mitch, that if we are the hope of the world, then we need to be in pursuit of heaven, trying our best to take as many people with us as possible, trying to ensure that Every soul, every person we meet has an opportunity to experience God, his benefits, and everything that he has for us. Henry, you can come on. It's probably the year 2000, and, you know, I was, I was one of those kids who, in high school, you know, I, I don't know, I developed a little later, so I struggled in middle school, but then got to high school and found athletics and, you know, became... Um, a little bit more confident, you know, I was always fortunate to have a youth group that, you know, supported me, and so I, I fit at church, but at school, it was a little different, I was trying to find my place, but then when I finally just got past that, you know, I, I just embraced, you know, being a, a born-again Pentecostal kid, you know, I was just excited about God and living for God, and when I did that, something kind of broke, and I remember being on the football field one day, and somebody just, we were just talking, cutting up, Somebody asked me, Graylin, what, what, what is your dream? I said, man, my dream is to get to heaven and take somebody with me. And after I heard it, I was like, man, that was good. That was, that was real good. And so that kind of became my identity, and that was my nickname in high school. They called me the Rev. And they'd say, Rev, I want you to get up and pray for us. I'd get up and I'd pray, you know, and, and, and Coach would, would make me feel real good. He, they, they supported it. And I started inviting friends to church, and they'd invite their friends, and their parents would come, and they'd visit. And there was one set of brothers that were like my, my close, close buddies. We used to, we lived in this apartment called Auburn Creek, man, and we just, we used to rip and run every, you know, we just had a blast. We loved being kids. But in November of my junior year, Roland, he's the older brother, his brother Adam, we went to school together, same grade. We got the call that, that Roland had passed away in a car accident. And I remember how it happened. I was in church. We were about to start service, and Adam comes in, and his eyes are all bloodshot. I'm like, what's up, dude? He's like, man, Roland died. And it just, if you've ever had the news that abruptly, like, shared with you like that, you really don't know what to do or how to figure it out. And, I mean, I didn't even know what to say. I'm, I'm still, although I'm... You know, I'm loving God. I'm living for him the best I can as a young person. I, I didn't have words. I hadn't experienced that aspect of living for God yet, to console or counsel someone through that. But his parents really didn't worship at a particular church, so they were like, you know, his mom asked, can we have it at your church? I said, yeah. 
I'll talk to my pastors that absolutely. They, they knew who they were. They'd been coming around to youth functions and stuff. And I never would have imagined in my life the response. I mean, we had probably 400 or so chairs down in the church I attended. Every chair was full of students, principals, teachers. And they got to hear about a young man who was trying to give his life to God. And the faith that had begun to burn inside of him. And as a young person, man, that was the coolest thing that could ever happen to me. For just a moment, they had an opportunity to hear about it. At least I knew. Many of them probably were believers, but my friend, my church, me. And it was in that moment where I began to feel something shift inside of me, a shift that just let me know that I've got to stop living in fear of hell. And I've got to start living in pursuit of the kingdom of God. And that what he was going to do in and through me superseded, you know, the deception of the enemy. I know he's trying. He'll throw stuff at you all the time. But the Bible tells us how we can do this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. It says that since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven. It's real. It's not just a, a fictitious place, a figment of my imagination, a construct of, of, of hopeful thinkers. It's real. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of the earth, for you died to this life, and your real life is hidden in Christ. So put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Don't be greedy, for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. You used to do these things when your life was still a part of the world, but our, our paradigm is shifting. Our focus is shifting. I'm not just trying to make it anymore, outrunning flames. Now I'm in steady pursuit of God and the things of God. I'll sing for you, Jesus. I'll tell someone about you, Jesus. You know something so powerful, church? Your testimony is the most powerful weapon that you have. Satan will do everything he can to keep you quiet because he knows if you begin to share what God did for you, that is when the change comes. In that same passage that talks about Satan being cast out, it says that we're made overcomers by the word of our testimony. So Satan gets nervous when you begin to share. You know what? I don't know how to help you in this situation, but I know God heals because he healed my daughter. Fire ignites. A seed is dropped. Faith begins. Man, I used to 
club, you name it, everything. But then God did something in me. You don't have to do that every night. There is hope. He's got a plan for your life. You can be free. You begin to activate faith. Seeds begin to blossom. Fire begins to start because we're shifting from just preservation to pursuit. Our goal is to get to heaven and to take someone with us. Our goal is to get to heaven and to take someone with us. An army with a unique set of skills, equipped with a testimony that's more powerful than you can ever imagine, that literally puts hell on its knees, trembling because he knows I've just got a little bit of time. If I can keep them distracted, maybe they won't say anything. If I can keep them distracted, maybe he'll never see that there is hope and this does not have to be his end. For those of you in this place today that just need to, to know a little bit about heaven, let me tell you, Revelations 24, 4 says this, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death, sorrow, crying, or pain. All things are gone forever. Nothing is impossible for him. This king, why don't you do me a favor? Why don't you stand up and bow your heads? Take somebody by the head. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16 says, so be careful how you live, church. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Ignite your faith. Lift your eyes. Turn around. Focus on him. Not just being good. Not just staying out of trouble, not just staying out of hell, but pursue him with everything inside of you. That is how we will survive the end of this world. It turns from survival into thriving. We're going to thrive. The word of God tells us that there's going to be more people one to God in this season, in this end time than ever in history. And Paul's not here and Peter's not here and John the Baptist isn't here. But you know who is? Eric. Liz, Jose, John. This, this moment, this time, we're not just going to survive. We're going to thrive. And we know that he's going to use us to reach this world. He's going to use you to reach this community, to reach your school. Just, just open your mouth. Just say it. Tell someone your testimony. You don't have to be a preacher. Tell them what he did for you. Tell them how he saved your life, how he's healing you now. While we were yet sinning, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us right now. 